Welcome to Broadway Refocused, a podcast based on the Broadway Refocused project. This project explores Broadway's past with a new lens to understand Broadway's future. In each podcast episode, we will amplify the stories of women, queers, Black, Indigenous, and people of color in musical theater. We will listen, learn, and refocus so we can move forward in a more diverse and inclusive way. Broadway Refocused is hosted and taught by Spencer Williams, a musical theater educator, composer, and playwright. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. For today's episode, Broadway Refocused is delighted to welcome a wonderful friend, Kim Montalibano Heil. Kim is the associate producer and casting director at San Diego Repertory Theater, a theater that produces intimate, provocative, inclusive theater. Kim is a dedicated advocate of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and places those values at the forefront of all of her work. She is especially interested in the intersection of the performing arts and financial literacy, and has sought to dispel the myth of the starving artist through her Instagram live channel, The Nuance. You can follow her at The Nuance 2020. Before we dive into this week's episode, we want to thank you, the listener and student, for supporting Broadway Refocused. Without your support, we wouldn't be able to share these important stories. In Unit 6 of Broadway Refocused, we explore the history of casting in the musicals West Side Story and Hamilton. We learn about the lack of Latinx representation in the original production and movie of West Side Story, and then how, in its recent revival that opened on Broadway in February 2020, has been intentionally cast with young, up-and-coming actors of color, and an astounding 33 members of the company are making their Broadway debut. Today, we will listen to biracial actor Isaac Powell, who is playing Tony on Broadway, sing Something's Coming, in a viral video posted in May 2020 during the COVID pandemic. Maybe, yes, it will. Maybe just by holding still, it'll be there. Come on, something, come on in. Don't be shy, be a guy, put a chair. Side Story and Hamilton in Unit 6 of Broadway Refocused under the Classroom tab on our website. Please share with your family and friends so that we can continue these powerful conversations about diversity and inclusion on Broadway. And now, this week's episode. Welcome to Broadway Refocus. Today, we're really excited to have Kim Montalibano Heil with us. She is a casting director at San Diego Rep, as well as the associate artistic producer. Did I say that right, Kim? Associate producer, close enough. 
Okay, close. But we're really excited to have you today to talk a little bit about casting, diversity and inclusion inside of that process and how things are hopefully changing in the future. But we always like to ask our guests first a little bit about your background and how you, I, this might be a long question, but just a little bit of a background of how you got to San Diego Rep and into the theater business. Yeah. Wow. That is, okay. how much time do we have? So I started as an actor in LA. I primarily did musicals. I discovered, although all of this is in retrospect, I don't think I was thinking this at the time, but I was immensely bored by rehearsals, which is weird because when I talk to people who are professionals now, they're like, oh, I miss the rehearsal room. I love rehearsals. And I'm like, oh my God, I hated rehearsals. Like, just take me to the actual show, right? Let's just get to the part when we get to be on stage. And so what I found was that all this work that people were doing, you know, actors were doing to learn their lines, to, you know, just their homework. I hated doing it. And that told me something. I was like, maybe this isn't what I want to do. Maybe I want to be part of this thing called theater, but maybe being part of the show per se, or being, you know, the process of building this show is not exactly for me, but I didn't know what I wanted, honestly, because like everybody else, our first sort of introduction to theater is usually as a performer. But I think sometime like, I don't know, I'd been working professionally as an actress for about two or three years. I decided I wanted to go to graduate school, but I didn't want to get an MFA. I wanted to do something behind the scenes, but again, I didn't know what, what it was. And so I researched a bunch of graduate programs and I discovered a program called performance studies at NYU. And I thought, well, that's vague enough where I think I can build whatever it is that I'm good at within the theater industry or theater world in that grad program. So I applied, it was the only graduate program I applied to. And I was actually on tour with the Rockettes at the time. I applied, I got in, and then I moved to New York to start studying. And then that basically introduced me to a whole different world of theater, but also two kinds of theater. Commercial theater, which was Broadway, theater for money, if one can imagine such a thing. And then also experimental theater. And I studied with really wonderful people like Richard Schechner, Anna DeVere Smith, and, you know, just being around that kind of virtuosity taught me that if you really want to be in this, then you have to elevate yourself. You have to work really, really hard and you have to find what it is that you're particularly good at so that you can refine that skill set and then just, you know, catapult yourself to the top of your game, which is essentially what I did. I realized that, okay, I'm not going to be Miss Saigon, even though that's what I had originally wanted. And then honestly, in retrospect, I was like, do I really want to play a prostitute in Vietnam? Is that, is that my dream? Like, why? I realized that I needed to do something else in the theater world. And quite frankly, it was not defined for me. It was not something that was sort of an easy path to find. I had to define it myself. Ultimately, we wanted to leave New York. It was not for me or my husband, just in terms of a long-term plan. We wanted to have children. It was so expensive to live there. So we moved to San Diego. And then in San Diego, because of my work in New York, Jack O'Brien, the director, had been told about me and he wanted to hire me when I moved. So literally like two months after I moved to San Diego, he hired me as his assistant. 
And so I worked for him for a couple of years, as well as the founder of the Old Globe. This was at the Old Globe Theater. And I worked at the Old Globe for nine years, realized that I wanted to get some leadership experience um, under my belt. Like I knew that on my resume, people needed to see that I had the uh, ability and the experience to lead an organization. So I jumped on an opportunity to become the education director of a youth theater that had originally been the spinoff of the Old Globe. And then I worked there for three years and discovered that I missed sort of the other, that was youth theater, you know? So I wanted to go back to producing theater. I got this opportunity to be at San Diego Repertory Theater four years ago. And you know what? It's been, it's, whoa, it's been a ride. It's been really good. And then COVID happened. And now it's like, what the heck is happening? So we're trying to figure it out. <laughs> so that's where we are now. Very cool. As growing up in the Philippines and then also in America, what was that like for your family when you're like, I want to do theater and I want to go into this business? What was that like for you? It was not easy. You know, something that I talk about a lot in my own show, The Nuance, is that the general, uh, the conventional wisdom of immigrant communities is that once you're here, you really need to find work that is stable and lucrative and will give you and your family a comfortable and prosperous life. Both things that are not quite associated with an arts career in the eyes of many immigrants. So my parents were supportive in high school, but when it came time to choose a major, they were like, so you're going to try to find something that's more stable. And I was like, well, what is that? So I thought about it, I thought about it, and I landed on psychology, which has helped me in this world of artists. I have no regrets there. But what was interesting is that in my undergrad, I literally was like the non-theater major hanging out with all the theater majors. But I would do all the shows, I would do, I did show choir, like I was a sort of psych major by day and theater geek by night. My mom was like, you know, you have a degree in psychology, you could do HR, you know, as though that's like so exciting, HR. And I was like, yeah, no. And so eventually I think my father figured out that I was not happy. So he was the one who said, you know, you need to audition. You need to go audition. And so I did. And the first audition I did, I booked. And it was not a paying gig. It was a community theater production, but it didn't matter at the time because I was so, I had graduated from college at this point and trying to sort of hold down a real job and a traditional life of nine to five, et cetera. And I was just so unhappy. And he saw that and he, he said, no, go, go audition. And so I did. And I, you know, it was Man of La Mancha and I was a, one of the ensemble members. Like it was not a big role at all. It was in a tiny theater. But like I said, what it did was it brought me back. It brought me back to my home. It brought me back to my tribe. It brought me back to life basically. And, and then after that, I just never went back to sort of non-theater work. Now being on both sides of the table, I think this is something that I encourage students to experience the audition side, and then also to be on the other side where you're looking at all the audition needs. What was your experience as a performer, as a Filipino in LA, auditioning for roles that maybe 
were deemed, and I'm air quoting, white or white traditional or things. What was that experience like being on that side of the table? And then as you've moved to the other side of the table, casting, what was that like for you? Well, we're talking about a 20-year difference, right? Because I was doing all of that in the 90s. So it was a completely different time just in history, right? And just in terms of what's happening in the United States. Back then, there were very few opportunities for specific Asian roles. It's one thing, and this idea of colorblind casting that sort of took hold, I'd say probably in the 80s, maybe, which I don't really believe in anymore, or not that I ever did, but I sort of went along with it when I was an actor, like, oh, cool, they're looking for anyone in this part. I can submit for this part. Ultimately, it didn't serve me as far as my career to see an array of colorblind casting breakdowns. So it was hard. It was hard. And I think the thing that I definitely felt was that my aspirations were limited. I could never be, say, a Phoebe on Friends. Like I could never be a series regular. I could be an under five, meaning, you know, under five lines or a guest star, you know, or maybe if you're lucky, you're a recurring role. So a lot of my friends in LA at the time, they would book like the doctor roles on ER, right? Because for a while, that's what they cast Asians in was all the medical roles. And that was difficult. But to be honest, I didn't question it at the time. It was just the way things were. And as far as theater was concerned, it was around the time that Miss Saigon was taking, you know, place. And as far as casting, I mean, a lot of auditions. I auditioned for that show, I kid you not, like for seven years. And every time I would get such good feedback from, and I, I told Tara, well, we'll talk later about Tara Rubin, but Tara Rubin at the time was working for Johnson Liff, which was the casting agency for Miss Saigon. And so she was in the room, right? And she was so lovely. Like I have a memory. I joked with her that, you know, I have such PTSD about that time, but I told her, you know, you were amazing. She was, she was so nice. And I always got really good feedback and I always felt like I did a good job and I never booked the show, <laughs> which was frustrating, but also kind of affirming of this idea that I had in the back of my head that this wasn't really what I wanted to do anyway. But again, you know, we're talking about one show. Now, if you compare that to the average actor who is Caucasian, they're not just gunning for Miss Saigon, right? They're gunning for any show that's out there because there's roles for them everywhere. But in musical theater, for me, I was like, there's a show called Sayonara that, you know, once made waves. And then there's Flower Drum Song, which I also got to the very last round and then I got cut. There's Pacific Overtures, but there's not really any female roles in that. So there's like very limited opportunities in musical theater. Oh, King and I, of course. I've done two King and I's, for God's sake. And so, again, we're talking, what did I just name? Like six, seven shows, eight shows. I ended up doing quite a bit of musical theater. Like I did a, a few Josephs because... People seem to think, oh, Joseph, that can be colorblind. Just have all sorts of, you know, ethnicities in Joseph. So I did a few Josephs. I also did uh, Damn Yankees. You know, like I did, I did shows that, that were not traditionally uh, 
Asian in any way. But I think people were starting to think more about, well, why not? I was actually at a point where <laughs> Miss Saigon aside, I was actually doing quite well in the musical theater world. But, but again, I had this weird sense that it was like a spidey sense that I was not going to have a lot of opportunities. And I was right for that time anyway. It's different now. How have you seen it change? I mean, you've had this experience and, you know, from the 90s till now, it's definitely changed quite a bit. The biggest change that really arrived, I think, full force has been intentionality. Because that is the key, I think. You have to be intentional in your casting. You, not you, Spencer, but, you know, the general you can say, I want to be uh, diverse. I want to be anti-racist. You can say all those things, but until you actually start to do the work behind those words, they're just words. So the intention is what drives the work, right? So that's what's happening now. I feel like right now people are actually saying, oh, we have to do more than just say on our breakdowns, we welcome all people of all ethnicities, LGBTQIA+, of all abilities. Like you can say all those beautiful things and it's important to say them, but there's an extra step. And for many years, people were not taking that extra step. And that extra step, because it, it is quite a lot of work, you have to go into those communities and you have to engage and you have to invite people to the table for their consultation and expertise. So for instance, if you're casting a show like Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, if you don't have someone who's on the spectrum as part of your team, your creative team, your casting team, you're doing the show a great disservice, but most of all, you're doing the community a great disservice. The, the autism community. And so the intentionality is what tells you to take that, those extra steps to really communicate and engage with the communities that you are representing on your stage and finding ways to bring them into an, and to be a part of that table where all those creative decisions are made. And that's what's happening now that I don't think was, was happening even, quite frankly, even a year ago. I'm not sure they were happening. Just this month, San Diego Rep just posted like kind of a long thing on their website, yep. which I loved. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm gonna read it because I think it's really important. But they stated that they wanted to expand the casting process to offer a wider range of opportunities for black indigenous actors of color LGBTQIA+, women, neurodiverse, and actors with disabilities. What was that process as a company to come up with that specific language? It was long and arduous, if I'm being honest, because there are people on our team for whom this language is not mere, you know, lip service. If we're going to say it, we're going to do it. So when, and, and the reality is when you say you're going to do it and you decide you're going to do it, you have to know that a certain number or, you know, there are certain resources that you have to be able to tap into money, time, labor, 
in order to do that work. This work doesn't just happen, right? Again, there's that idea of intentionality. And so the people on our team and our team, like I said, is diverse, not just across ethnicity, but also generation diversity, LGBT diversity. And so I feel like we were all coming from different viewpoints that when we came to the consensus that this was the language we were going to use, we had to mean it. It all meant so much to each of us. That statement as sort of, you know, clean and and smoothly that it goes down was not conjured easily. It was arrived at after weeks and weeks of really carving out what it was that we wanted to say. And that involves some uncomfortable conversations that involves really examining things that are hard to examine, like your budget and your staff to see if you even have the, the inroads into the communities that we're talking about. And if we don't, do we have the time and the, the energy to invest into creating those inroads? So yeah, it was, it was, it sounds beautiful. You know, the, the, the statement itself is wonderful and I stand behind it, but it's not one that we take lightly. So yeah, we came to it with a lot of work. Yeah, there's a lot of work I think that has to happen with this type of intentionality. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, you've created those statements, but I'm sure as a company and as a team, you had to create some new avenues in different ways. Like what are those like at San Diego Rep? Creating those inroads that I was talking about, you mean? Yeah. The simplest answer I think that we've been able to do now because of COVID is that the geographic barriers that we had before, for instance, we had our Latinx New Play Festival back in September, early September. And as part of that festival, we produced a reading of a play called Sapiens by Diana Bourbano. And the main characters in it are neurodiverse, are on the spectrum. And Diane herself, I don't believe identifies as being on the spectrum, but she had worked with some folks who were to create the play. And then those people we were able to invite to our process. Now, if we were meeting in person, then that would have been difficult because that would have been, meant that we would have had to fly them out. We would have had to house them and that would have been hard to do just budgetarily. But because of COVID, everything's being done virtually. So now the budgetary restrictions of geography are no longer as much of a consideration. And that's great in the sense that now we can bring those people onto our virtual table and be a part of that conversation. So that's one way that we feel like, okay, now we know how to do that. We know how to invite these communities into our table, our conversation. When things come back, how is that gonna look, right? But now at least we see the absolute critical importance of having them there. Whereas maybe like a year ago, there would have been like, oh, we just can't afford it. Well, now we've had that experience of engaging those people um, those experts and those people who are embedded in those, those communities. And we know that you simply cannot tell a story without them in the room. You just can't. And you shouldn't. You shouldn't. 
You know, you need to have these stakeholders and these people who know the experience just on a, on a molecular level. Yes. I think that's so important. And I think you're talking a lot about as well as like intersectionality of like how these things connect with one another to be able to tell stories. It's not just about one specific thing, right? It's about, you know, you have a woman writer, but she's also Latinx. There's also neurodiversity inside of that. So these are all things that are connecting. And yet it's so important that on both sides of the table that you have that representation so that you can tell the stories correctly. Yeah, and you know what? The more connections there are in terms of these intersections, the more questions there are. And so it doesn't get easier. It actually gets harder. But to my mind, these conversations benefit and they are richer. They sometimes can be more difficult, but they are better for the art and they're better for the community that the art is serving. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I even think even outside of theater, like in education, finding those intersections is actually pretty difficult so that everyone can see. I know in my life, even your identities change how that plays out for you, that sometimes that, you know, certain identities pop up at different times of your life. And so those it's always morphing and kind of changing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned Tara Rubin previous that you were auditioning for Tara Rubin and you've just announced that you're going to be working with Tara Rubin. Catherine. I have been so, working with her for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us all about that. That's exciting. Yeah, it is. So we did release the breakdown. So I feel like I have a little freedom to talk about it. Otherwise I'm like, ah, but so Jason Robert Brown, who I think you're familiar with and uh, book writer, Kenneth Lynn and director Moises Kaufman are part of the creative team of the new musical adaptation of the novel, Farewell, My Concubine. And it, it actually was made into a movie that was, that was huge internationally back in, I think, 1993. And what basically happened is that Tara saw me speak at a Casting Society of America diversity or BIPOC panel and I guess she liked what I had to say because a week later she offered me a gig. She wanted me to join her team, her casting team for this project. And I said, yes. And we have been in the thick of it ever since. I mean, we really, it's interesting because like, as soon as I knew I was, cause it wasn't like an automatic yes. It was sort of like, okay, let me, I've read the novel in three days <laughs> because I wanted to know, does this material resonate with me? Do I see an in for myself? Casting is interesting work. And I wanted to, I obviously I want to do a good job, but I also wanted to be able to bring something to Tara that maybe she felt like she needed. And Tara is a pro. I mean, she's been doing this for a long time and she's cast some of the biggest shows on Broadway and big, biggest tours, you know, and like, she's a force. She and her team are incredible. And so I was kind of like, well, I need to then know that I'm going to fill out this team in a way that they need, right? I did some soul searching and I did eventually land on yes. <laughs> and so I did join them and it's been amazing. And it's a lot of work, but I, I will say like the moment I said yes in my head, I started right away. Like I couldn't wait. 
I couldn't wait to, to like start creating lists, you know, of actors I knew and dreaming, you know, and because casting is like, it's a whole lot of imagination. It's a whole lot of taking what you think you know about an actor and then plugging them in to this sort of imaginary play that hasn't existed yet or show. And that's fun for me. That kind of creativity is so fun. But what's even more fun is when you are, you know, when you go through the audition process and the actors give you something that you don't even expect or didn't even enter your consciousness, this quality that they bring. And that's so fun. That's so wonderful. And that's been happening quite a bit. So I'm having the time of my life. Within the casting process with Tara, I'm assuming that part of the reason, not also because you're amazing, but also like there's some intentionality, right? Of like getting the right people behind the table. I'm assuming that's part of the story, yes? Yes. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, I, I, I make it, you know, I say all the time that I don't represent all Asians. You know what I mean? Like you cannot use me as a stand in for all Asian thinking all Asian representation. Just because I'm in the room does not mean all of a sudden that your room is an expert on casting Korean actors. Like that, it doesn't work that way. But if you can sort of understand it from the place of, I navigate the world with this face, with this color skin and hair, and that is a similar experience to my Pan-Asian brothers and sisters and that we culturally have similarities that that obviously a white person does not have. Then you can start to recognize where having the voice of someone like me in the room is important and does have purchase because, you know, like I'll give you an example. So I've seen a play where it's just an interesting thing and it really is case by case but like i saw a play where a filipino character was played by a chinese actor and i immediately immediately sensed the inauthenticity of that performance not through any fault of the actor it was merely that as a filipino i immediately just clued in that that person did not know what that life experience was and it, that's just purely my own thing, right? As an audience member. And I was not casting, like I wasn't trying to be a professional. I was really just an audience member at that moment. But I know what that feels like, that jarring sense of this person does not know what, that, what being Filipino is like, and I do. And so even just that understanding, even that, just that experience, I think is helpful in the context of casting a very specific Asian show. I'm glad you mentioned that, because I think that is really important that we think, oh, well, an Asian character can just drop in. And yet these are different countries, different cultures, different experiences. So different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know what, I've evolved in that, like even two, three years ago, I wasn't necessarily believing what I believe now. I do feel like it has been a process and an evolution of how I think of things, how I experience things, and then also how the world should be experiencing things. Yeah, and I think that authenticity is really important to the experience and to telling stories, right? Like this is what our job is in the theater is to tell stories and 
Yeah, but you know, it again, this brings up yet another question. And I'm telling you, none of this is comfortable. I have to be willing to sit in a place of discomfort when I talk about this stuff, because I know I at any given moment, I could be wrong about something. And so one perspective that has been presented to me, which I totally understand is, listen, Americans for years and years and years, white Americans for years and years, have played all kinds of other white people, right? So you have a German person who can play Dutch or an Italian person who can play a Spaniard or even an Irish person playing someone who's Australian, right? So like there's so much mobility even within the white community of artists and actors. And that's a real privilege. So once we start getting into this question of authenticity, are we going away from that? Are we going away from that privilege? I don't have the answer to that. But the question really is, is it not a privilege for a Korean actor to be able to play a Japanese character or a Chinese character or a Filipino character? Is that not a way that we can sort of own a privilege that has been previously owned by a white class, a white ruling class. I mean, I'm sorry to to sort of use, you know, these sort of racialized terms, but that's the world we're in. And no, I don't have the answer to that, but I, I think about it a lot, you know. In terms of what we're doing right now, I have some pretty clear ideas of how this particular project should go, can go. But in terms of a general idea of where we are with diverse casting, there are some real difficult conversations that I think we all have to be willing to have. And I love that you brought that up. And I think it is an incredibly difficult topic. And I think there is a lot of discomfort in it. And I think that we should live inside that discomfort. I mean, even looking at Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, you know, there has been a lot of talk about her, like the biracial, right? Is she a black uh, woman or is she an Indian woman or can she be both? And when in her experience is that reality showing up for her? And I know a lot of uh, specific like biracial actors are not ethnic enough for the role and then also not white enough for the role. And oh, yet, that's so hard. This is their experience. This is who they are. It's so, so hard. And you know, let me tell you, it's not just biracial. Like there are people, we're in a global, you know, not right now, but because no one's traveling right now, but even, you know, last year, let's say, if you were to freeze a moment in time in 2019, people like you and I could sort of travel and work around the world, right? I was raised in Indonesia. I left the Philippines when I was six. I grew up in Indonesia and, you know, I lived there till I was 17. So those are my formative years, right? And I struggled because I was not Filipino enough for a lot of my family members because I was removed from that culture and but I was certainly not Indonesian because I was a foreigner in Indonesia and I went to an international school. So I, you know, was taught in English. I was taught American subjects, you know, like I was already a mutt, even though compositionally I'm a hundred percent Filipino inside. 
you know, what do you make of that? What do you make of that? Right. So I would go in for Filipino roles and I actually would have my mom read the sides to me first so I could hear her accent. And then I could like take that and be like, okay, thanks mom. And then like, I'd go and audition for these Filipino roles, but I needed to like practice my Filipino accent. You know, there, there are no clear answers in this. It's, it's just hard. My daughter is mixed race. She looks mixed in my mind. My son is mixed race, but he looks like total native Filipino to me. Like he looks Filipino. He is, you know, dark skinned and dark black hair. Like he, to my mind, he doesn't have a trace of white in him, but some people disagree. But you know, like he's mixed race. So it's just, it's just, there are just too many exceptions to whatever rule we're trying to make. I love that. Well, this is fascinating to talk about this. And I think sitting in discomfort is the right place to be for everyone throughout this process. I think COVID has brought to light a lot of these issues, but also I think hopefully people are having some time to talk about it, to be more intentional around it. And so that when I'm saying that very intentionally, when we reopen, you know, we can move forward a little bit more inclusive, yeah. right? That would be yeah. the goal. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, if anything, like you said, I think that where we are right now is just starting to recognize that we have to be able to be uncomfortable. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, we have 10 quick questions. We ask all of our guests and they're kind of rapid fire. So first thing that comes to mind, so we'll start. What was the first musical you ever saw? I think it was The King and I, and I'm pretty sure Leia Salonga was one of the children in it. Favorite musical of all time? I hate to choose because I have a lot, but my go-to is always Spring Awakening. I just love Spring Awakening. It's no wonder why we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a musical guilty pleasure. Honestly, King and I, because... Like people ask, like, do we do we really need to do King and I ever again? And I know where they're coming from, but that music, come on, that music. Ugh. Anyway, uh, were you in High School Musicals? Yes. Full cool. stop. <laughs> yeah. Favorite cast album. Again, this is so hard because I I go through my phases and but I will never tire. This is like a desert island disc for me. <laughs> disc that so dates me. Jesus Christ Superstar with Murray Head. Oh, cool. Uh, what has been your favorite piece or production you've had the privilege of being a part of? Oh gosh. You know, when I was at the Old Globe, there were several that I just loved, loved, loved so much. I'm trying to, I can't. And because you're talking about musicals, right? And musicals, we don't do as many musicals at, at the rep, which is why I go to, to the Globe. I, gosh, oh my gosh. Well, just because it's behind you, I'm going to go ahead and say Whisper House because, because I'll tell you why. At the time, it was like, revolutionary like people didn't watch music the, the musicals did not look like that what's a dream show you would like to produce here lies love right away i know final question for you a quick snapshot or moment you miss about live theater 
there are so many. It's so hard. It's so hard. Okay. So after opening night, this is so specific, but for any of the shows that the, at the rep, after like the opening that performance, I stand outside the stage door and in our theater, the stage door directly leaves, leads into the lobby because we're in a basement and the actors come out one by one. And usually there's like a swath of fans and family and people waiting to congratulate them. And usually I do this intentionally. I stand there waiting, knowing that they'll come to me first. And they do usually come to me first. And it's always this exchange of gratitude of like, thank you. You know, obviously like they ask, they tell me, thank you for casting me. But for me, it's like, thank you for being you. And thank you for auditioning. And thank you for committing this time to be part of this piece of art. Thank you for being so good at this. You know, like that's where I'm coming from. And there's this like moment of this exchange between me and the actor after opening night where it's like a genuine like soul connection and that I totally miss that. I love that. And I love that we're ending on gratitude because thank you for coming and speaking to us and talking to us about your experience and, and how San Diego Rep is moving forward and the intentionality around all of this. This is, this is exciting work. Thanks so much, Spencer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Broadway Refocused, produced by Fashion Consort. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about the Broadway Refocused project and its musical theater curriculum, please visit broadwayrefocus.com. You can also join the conversation on Instagram at Broadway Refocused. Thank you to Trevor List, who developed our graphic design, to Phil, a.k.a. Corinne, for their voiceover work, and Spencer Powell for our theme music. Stay tuned for our next episode.